I calculate that this is my 59th Labor Day on the planet. Yeah, see, when you get old, you do stupid stuff like calculate how many Labor Days you've had on the planet. I don't know why we do this, but we do. But I have found as I've gotten older, I tend to reflect a little more. And that might be because there's more life behind me than in front of me. Uh, but I think about the things that have, that have happened in my life, and um, it occurs to me that this happens in phases. I mean, when I was younger, when I was in my 20s, you know, I'd think about when I ter- became a teenager, when I got my driver's license, when I graduated from high school, right? Some of you are like, those are the big events in your life right now. That's all you got, because you're young, right? And then, then you get into the uh, wedding, and we had a slew of those this summer, didn't we, here at Redeemer? And then the childbearing, and, and then you go through it again, because then your children become teenagers and get their driver's license and graduate from high school. And then eventually you get to the, to the phase I'm in right now where grandchildren are on the way. <laughs> Pastor Dave is going to be Grandpa Dave very soon. This whole introduction was just designed so I could say that. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But we, but we mark our lives by big events, right? Big events which forever change our lives. I mean, you get married, and things change, right? You have children, and things change. But we also mark these things kind of, kind of as, a, as, a, as a people. I mean, this week has been a big event. This hurricane, right, has been called, uh, you know, the, the most extreme rain event in our history. In three days in Houston, when the storm hit, they recorded enough rain in those three days to make it the wettest month in the history of Houston. And we think about the population center there, about 5% of the U.S. population is located in the storm area. I, I don't know how many of you I've talked to who know people in Houston who have family in the area and so forth, right? So, so it really impacts us all. But then as a people, we also look at kind of the achievements, you know, uh, Apollo 11, Again, I'm marking my age because I, I remember when we landed on the moon, right? So our, mankind's achievements marks our, our, ourselves as, as a humanity and changes things. And then not only our achievements, but sometimes mankind visiting evil on ourselves changes things. It occurred to me that incoming freshmen at IU were two years old when the September 11th attack occurred. They, you, some of you, have, have, have no tangible memory of that event. But that event changed our history. But there's, there's another history which has significant events, which is broader than all of those that contains our personal histories, that contains the history of ourselves as a humanity. And that's God's redemptive history. The big history. And, and frequently we look at this history kind of in, in four movements or four phases, right? God created. He spoke into being the universe. He spoke the planets, the stars, land and sea, plants and animals into being. And then for a special creation, he formed us out of dust, breathed life into us, made us in his image. And then seemingly all too quickly, we messed it up. Now, I don't know how long Adam and Eve were in the garden, but it seems short. It's just two chapters of Genesis, right? Then we get to chapter 3, and bad things happen. Satan leads Adam and Eve to question the veracity of God's word. Did God really say that? He taps into their desire to be gods themselves. You could be like God. 
and we are separated from the God who loved us and the God who created us. But then, he had a plan. This next phase would be a long time coming. We don't know how long Adam and Eve were in the garden, but we do know it took centuries, millennia, for this next stage to be realized. God had a plan to reunite us with him through a Messiah. And this plan would unfold through a series of covenants with Adam and with Abraham and with Moses and David. And it would take the rest of the Old Testament, Genesis 3 all the way through Malachi, God's preparing for and planning for the completion of the fullness of time. There would be promises and prophecies, symbols that constantly pointed to this Messiah. He would use Israel's rescue from Egypt to symbolize what would happen. And then finally, Christ's work will be consummated at his return. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. Kind of like a cosmic house flippers. Two HGTV fans in the audience today. Thank you. (laughs) I knew I should have left that out. Our text today, though, much like some of these events in our lives and some of these events in history, contains a monumental, an epic, a colossal announcement that the time a time anticipated for millennia before was coming, a time in history like no other, a moment that would reconcile mankind to the one true, holy, and living God. Let's stand and look at our text today. It's in the book of Mark, chapter 1, beginning at verse 14, page 836 in your Bibles that are in the rows. Mark 1, beginning at verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will... And I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat and the hired servants and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray, shall we? Father God, we're so thankful for your revealed plan uh, in your word. Um, We're thankful that your your plan included bringing us back to you, to rescuing us uh, from our own selves, Father. As we look into your word this morning, um, may what you have done pierce our hearts, may it change our lives, may we be transformed by it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may have a seat. So what do you think of that bold statement I just made? Epic, monumental, colossal. Think, think I overdid it a bit? Did, did, did I push too much? I mean, if we look at the text, if we go back to last week, we kind of have this brief description of, of Jesus in the wilderness and, and, and being tempted, and before that, just a really brief description of John the Baptist and, and who he was, and then in a single sentence... 
Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. I kind of read that like sixth graders do, or like some of you do in your CGs, just kind of emotionless. And, and if we do that, it would kind of be easy to, to kind of gloss over this fairly simple declaration is not significant. I mean, am I making too much of this? And we have to be careful about the brevity that Mark uses. This is kind of his hallmark, right? Shortest gospel. He's kind of quick action, move, move, move. Here's what happened. Here's what happened. But keep in mind that Mark is not a biographer in the 21st century sense of the word. He's not really interested in chronological order. I mean, that's what we like. We read a biography or we want to know how events unfold, what happened first, second, third, and fourth, right? He hardly ever tells us where things happen. There's no locations identified. It's not his style. It's not his intention. It's a fast-paced narrative. But again, I ask, am I making too much of this? Is this epic, monumental, colossal announcement? Well, let's start with the messenger. Who is this Jesus guy? Right? What does, what does John say? Well, we go back to the sermon two weeks ago, and we found out a couple things, right? When John said, I am unworthy to untie his sandals, that was a profound statement because slaves untied the sandals of their owners. And he says, I'm not even worthy of that. And keep in mind here, what he's not doing is demeaning himself. He's exalting the person he's talking about. And why is that, says John, from a couple of weeks ago? He says, I baptized with water. He's going to baptize with the Spirit. Now, in our CG, we got in a little discussion about what does that mean from the point of baptism. The point isn't about baptism. It's about the person doing the baptizing. John is saying there's a huge distinction between who he is and who Jesus is. John is saying that he's going to point us to the Messiah. And the person he points to is Jesus. So John seems to think that the bearer of this message is pretty important. Because he's not worthy to even untie his sandals. So maybe I am on track with the epic monumental colossal. What about the literary context of this, of this single sentence? We've learned that this is the first gospel written of the four. Mark wrote it first. It's only preceded of the New Testament books by James, which we just got finished looking at, Galatians, and Paul's two letters to the brothers and sisters at Thessalonica. We are fairly certain that although Mark has his name on the book and penned it, it was authorized by Peter. This is Peter's account of Jesus' life. It's approved and endorsed and certified. So it's got really good apostolic bona fides, if you will. And we know that Scripture, while penned by men, was inspired by the Holy Ghost, by the Holy Spirit. Paul writes to 2 Timothy that it's, it's God-breathed. Now take this into account, too. All literature is arbitrary. An author writes what he wants to write. So the events recorded in the Bible are there because God wanted them to be there. There was no co-author, no editor. Nobody said, you know, Lord, I think you ought to get rid of this paragraph. God's word, as he intended it, every word. So what does this mean? This means that the words of Mark 1.15 are likely the first quoted words of Jesus in writing. 
God chose as the first quoted words to be recorded by the second person of the Trinity to be the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. There's got to be a reason for that, don't you think? What about the words themselves? The word time here, and I was really looking for Stephen Hopkins so I could pronounce these words correctly, so I'm going to mispronounce them. The word for time here is either kairos or keros. When we translate language, those of you who have studied language at all, someone didn't sit down a couple thousand years ago and say, well, here's Greek, here's Spanish, here's French, here's English. The word for time in this language will be this, in this language it'll be this, in this language it'll be this, in this language it'll be this. Words don't translate directly, right? So there's two words we translate time from the Greek in the New Testament. One is chronos, chronology, right? And this refers to the moment-by-moment passing of time. Keros is a particular moment that is so significant, it defines everything that comes after it. That's the word that Jesus used. We can compare two words like historical and historic, right? Everything that takes place is historical. It has a place in time. It happened. But not everything that takes place is historic, like hurricanes or attacks or becoming a grandfather. We reserve the word historic for certain special occurrences. Christ's birth, death, and resurrection are historic. The exodus of Israel from Egypt, historic. When Jesus said, the time is fulfilled, he was saying that a very significant time in human history, in redemptive history, had arrived. Now, let's add to that this word fulfilled. Again, a word I can't pronounce. I think it's pleroma. What does that mean? When I fill up my cup in the morning with coffee... I usually leave about a quarter of an inch so I can pick it up and I can carry it. Pleroma, when it says filled, this would be me taking that cup of coffee in that pot and pouring it, pouring it, pouring it, pouring it until I got the very last molecule in that cup and one more molecule is going to spill over the edge. That's how full that word means. That's the word that Jesus used. The time is significant. It is full. Waiting for centuries and millennia is done. It's over. It's about to happen. Add into that this term, at hand. We sometimes use the phrase at hand as meaning about to happen. For example, Thursday night, middle of the fourth quarter, victory for the Ohio State Buckeyes was at hand. We all knew it was going to happen. That's not what Jesus is saying. This, this word here means it's physically here. It was at hand because he was here. The Messiah had come. The historic moment was unfolding in a person, the person of Jesus. So Jesus is saying that this is a time, the time of his life on earth that is heavy with eternal significance. John's testimony the place of this sentence in the context of literature, and Jesus' words himself, that time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. But, but what is this message? Okay, it's significant. I think I proved that. I was not over the top. Epic, monumental, colossal, those were appropriate words. 
Well, what do we mean by the kingdom of God? Hasn't the kingdom of God always existed? Isn't he eternal? Isn't everything under his kingdom? Isn't he sovereign? Yes, but again, language. What does this term mean to first century Jews who are listening to Jesus? The Old Testament specifically says this, that kingdom of God means God's personal visitation to this fallen world for one reason, redemption, to initiate the next and final stage of his redemptive plan. That's what it is. The fall separated us from God, created a chasm because of our sin. Our relationship with our Heavenly Father has been broken, and we, of our own accord, are incapable of fixing it. We need a Savior, someone who can live the life we cannot and die in our place, and that Savior is Jesus, and He is saying, He is here. Wow. But even more significant, Jesus is not only the messenger. He's the message. It's him. He is what is important. He is not conveying some philosophical truth. He is the truth. It is his person which makes all the difference. So Jesus is making an historic announcement, bigger than any announcement in the history of mankind before, bigger than the Declaration of Independence, bigger than Microsoft's announcement of Windows 1.0, Bigger than the declaration of a real estate tycoon that he's running for president. That's what I thought you would do. (laughs) The announcement is good news. It's the gospel. But it's just not news. It's just not, here it is, listen up. As we see in this single sentence, Jesus' announcement also has a response. An appropriate response for those who would accept his message, and him as messenger. And that response is repent and believe. We're going to take a little aside. We're going to do a little Bible 101 because we need to do this to understand the significance of these two words, repent and believe. Okay, Four Gospels, right? Four accounts of Jesus' life, not biographies, certainly not as we know them today, not necessarily interested in chronology, not necessarily interested in specific locations, not all inclusive. I mean, we have the birth of Jesus in Matthew and Luke. We have one incident when Jesus was 12, and then nothing until he's 30 years old, right? So not a biography, but all of them describes Jesus' life, and all of them from different perspectives, different purposes, right? Some events are described differently in different Gospels, but none contradict one another. So, they're all very similar, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which all draw from the same source, but they all come at it from a different angle. And what this means is this. If we want, as students of God's Word, in our desire to know who God is, we've got to roll up our sleeves. We've got to do a little bit bit of work. Sometimes we have to really work to... Excuse me. To get a complete picture. So let's, for example, take our our, our text here. In fact, let's start with the text from last week. Jesus goes into the desert. Mark indicates this is right after his baptism. Yeah. Matthew and Luke agree. But Matthew and Luke both include a little more information. So we can get a better idea of what happened. And our text today. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time was fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What Mark doesn't tell us is 
Well, well, how long was Jesus proclaiming the gospel and preaching this before we get to verse 16, where Mark says, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon. If we just read it real quickly, it sounds like Jesus started preaching and then, boom, went to the Sea of Galilee and grabbed these two guys, or four guys, correct? Well, let's look at what the other guys say. If we look at Matthew, Matthew has Jesus coming back, proclaiming, and then he has him going to Capernaum and get an apartment. He goes and gets a place to live in Capernaum. And then he goes and calls the four guys. Well, why did Matthew do that? Because it fulfilled a prophecy. Matthew wrote his gospel to Jews. His goal was, look, this is the Messiah that was written about in the Old Testament. Here's more proof. So he included that. And then he has Jesus go into the Sea of Galilee and call the four guys. What about Dr. Luke, physician and historian extraordinaire? There's a lot more there. He says Jesus comes out of the desert, and he's preaching in the power of the Spirit, and he says he taught in the synagogues, plural. Well, that's going to take some time, especially if he's just going on the Sabbath to one synagogue after the other, right? And then he says he goes to Nazareth. Well, now there's traveling. And there's this event, right, where he goes to his hometown synagogue. He reads the Gospel of Isaiah, which says, describes the Messiah. And then he boldly says, I'm the guy. If he was from Chicago, he'd say, I'm the guy. This is, this is me. I'm from Chicago. That's how we speak. And then Luke goes on to describe casting out of demons. He goes in, Jesus goes and heals Simon's mother-in-law. There's a general account of more casting out demons. And finally, he says, yeah, he went on preaching and preaching in the synagogues. Then, then the calling of the four disciples. And if we go to John, we get a whole completely different description. He goes back to John the Baptist. It's a two-day event, he and Jesus greater detail of what happened. And then two of John the Baptist's disciples go up to John and say, well, you, you said this guy is the greater guy. Shouldn't, shouldn't we go with him? And John says, yeah, you should. And one of those guys is Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So why did I spend all this time with this? Here's the point. When we put together the four gospel accounts... Bible scholars conclude that this Galilean ministry of Jesus may have lasted up to a year before the incident where Jesus goes to the Sea of Galilee and calls Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. If we read this too quickly, right, it sounds like boom, boom, boom. Why is that important? Let's get back to our text. Repent and believe the gospel. Let's start with believe. Again, what do these words mean? When Jesus says believe, okay, if we take contemporary music, Counting Crows, lead singer and lyricist Adam Duritz, the song Mr. Jones, believe in me, help me believe in anything, because I, I want to be someone who believes. Be grateful I didn't try to sing it. He seems to be just searching for something to believe and not necessarily concerned what that might be. Is that what Jesus is saying? Hey, I'm going to throw something out there. You want to latch on to it? Fine. No. In this context, belief has content. 
Okay, what did not happen at the Sea of Galilee was this. An unknown stranger approaches Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, and John and says, come with me, and these four guys drop everything and go. Now, could the Holy Spirit have made that happen if he wanted to? Sure. But if we look at the breadth of the Gospels, that's not how Jesus operates. Right? Jesus called these guys after they had acquired an understanding of who he was and the message he brought. These four men, Galileans, Jesus in Galilee, watched, listened to, questioned, built a relationship with this itinerant preacher named Jesus for over a year. They heard him proclaim over and over again the gospel. They witnessed him cast out demons. Luke says that during this time, Jesus was becoming pretty famous. Quote, a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he says further, Jesus was glorified by all. He was well-known. He was popular. These four guys lived in the area. They listened to him. They followed him. In John's gospel, when Andrew leaves John the Baptist to follow Jesus, he goes and gets his brother and says this, we have found the Messiah. These guys believed, and they had something that they actually believed. They knew what they were getting into. So it's important to understanding of our understanding of this passage that we see the calling of these disciples was not something that happened the moment Jesus you know, started his ministry. But after a period of time, these men believed something. The words of Jesus' message have meaning, deep meaning, time, kingdom, repent, believe, all convey deeper, important meaning. Time here is not about seconds and minutes. It's about the importance of the event. Kingdom is not about realm, but about a ruler. So likewise, repent and believe have depth. And the first thing to know about belief is it has content. But is that enough? Is it simply an intellectual assent to an idea? Just an acceptance of some content, just acknowledging that something happened or something did something, someone did something? No. Belief of the type Jesus is talking about involves commitment. The coming of God's kingdom means the acceptance of God's rule in hearts and minds. Truly accepting God's rule. And you can't do that without commitment. And these four guys perfectly exemplified that. They dropped everything and went. I've said that all literature is arbitrary, so why? Why does the Holy Spirit, through the hand of Mark, place the calling of these four disciples directly after this description, Jesus went proclaiming the gospel, and doesn't say, oh yeah, and he, they did this for a year. Why? Mark places the calling of Simon, Andrew, James, and John immediately after that description, not because it happened chronologically, but as a direct response to that message. Here's the message. Here's what these guys did. And what was the depth of their commitment? Four fishermen went and followed him? That doesn't sound very significant. We might not think that today. We think of the fishing industry. I think of the movie The Perfect Storm. That doesn't sound very glamorous. But back in Galilee, on the Sea of Galilee, that was a lucrative business. 
Zebedee, sons take off. He's fine. He's got hired servants. He's got hired hands. No problem. These guys left a probably wealthy, lucrative lifestyle to follow Jesus. So belief has content and belief has commitment. Repent and believe. Why do we need to repent? What's that all about? Can't I just believe? The coming of the king created a moment of crisis. The crisis is this. Receive the king and receive a life eternal with him. Receive him not and receive God's judgment. But no one can enter the kingdom of God, the kingdom of eternal life, without repentance because none of us is worthy. All of us have sinned. So what, what does this word mean? What does it mean to repent? In Luke's account of the calling of these four disciples, unlike Mark and unlike Matthew, Jesus just doesn't drop by and say, come on, boys, we're going. He sees the fishermen tending to their nets. He gets in a boat and goes out. There's a crowd. He teaches. Then he tells Simon Peter, grab some nets, we're going to go fish again even though the fishing had been miserable that day. And then Simon Peter, after they bring in this huge catch, keep in mind, he's been listening to Jesus for a year, says this, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Notice he didn't say, depart from me, oh, and here's a list of my sins. I'm repenting of these. That's repentance with a little r. Yes, we are to do that. But that's not the repentance Jesus is saying. Fundamentally, what Jesus is saying is, you are going in this direction. Repentance means you're going now in this direction. It's a reversal. A change of mind. It's repent with a capital R. It's a turn from focus on self, on what's best for me, and how do I benefit So what does a living God want me to do with my life? And that doesn't necessarily mean we drop our occupation and go follow. For some of us, it is. But there's plenty of examples in Scripture. The crowd at the beach. How many of those fishermen came to know Christ and carried on mission within the context of the lives that they had then? But not Simon, Andrew, James, and John. They changed direction to follow their Lord and Savior. Repent and belief. Belief, repentance. These two are inextricably intertwined. I can't believe I actually pronounced that correctly. Inextricably intertwined. One cannot exist without the other. If one is lacking, the other doesn't exist. I be- if I believe that Jesus who is who he says he is, and that I am who he says I am, I cannot help but to repent, to desire to change the direction of my life to be consistent with him. But I will have no reason to repent, no motivation, no desire, unless I believe, unless I acknowledge who he is. I accept his message that I can't be right with God without him. This is what it means to believe. This is what it means to repent. We are to leave everything Not necessarily walk away from the life we have, but to walk away from a life of self. Our focus on self, our self-centered ambitions, our desire to prioritize personal comfort and pleasure, 
and follow him. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus is announcing the presence of an epic moment and it requires a response. Not just from Simon, Andrew, James, and John, but from everybody seated in the room today. An announcement that requires a response. These guys committed their lives to their Savior, changed direction, and they demonstrated something. We have two choices and two choices only. There's no way around it. Two choices, repent and believe or face judgment, the judgment of a just and holy God. You may have heard of the term agnostic before, yes? Basically, an agnostic in general means someone who has knowledge of two opposing positions but holds to neither. With regard to Christ, that would be like someone who is familiar with the gospel. They've heard the message, but who has not yet decided to either accept or reject it. Jesus is telling us that with regard to his gospel, there is no such thing. The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Once you have heard the message, you are either in or you are out. At that point, an agnostic is simply an atheist who can't admit it. Jesus affirmed the initiation of this new age, this new covenant, this time of redemption on the night before his death on the cross. Gathered with his disciples in the upper room, celebrating the Old Testament symbol of redemption called the Passover, he broke the bread and instructed his disciples to that this is his body. Do this in remembrance of him. And then he took a cup of wine and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, the covenant he announced that day. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So now, here at Redeemer, we who believe, we who believe and repent, we who have accepted the message that he proclaimed 2,000 years ago, prepare to join him in this celebration, in this symbol of what he came to declare, that the kingdom of God is at hand. It is time for believers to renew our commitment to repentance and to turning our lives from self to God. There will be stations in the front and in the back. Here at Redeemer, we break off a piece of bread and dip it in the cup. There will be two cups. One is juice, the other is wine marked with twine to take as your conscience leads you. If you have questions, there will be prayer responders around the corner in the back or in the gym, and I'll be in the back. Let's pray. Father God, we're so grateful for the announcement of a Savior, the announcement of the coming of your kingdom, the declaration that the time of redemption is here, that you are calling us back to yourself, that you are providing the means of that calling, you are providing uh, the payment for the penalty that we deserve to pay, that you are clothing us in the righteousness of your Son. Father, so grateful that we live in a time where we can just dig into your word and understand what you have done and why you have done it and what your plan is for us. Father, we ask for hearts that accept the message of your gospel, that believe the message, that are committed to the message, that, that turn lives in repentance. Father, may your message just penetrate hearts today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.